I'm super happy. Are you happy? Welcome to the BU Find Happy Podcast. Here you'll find tips and tricks to inspire you on your way to happiness, to live a courageous life of authenticity, and learn how to speak your truth with grace. I'm Michaela Johnson, and welcome to our podcast. You asked, and I listened, how much more apropos could this be than having the founder of the Marriage Fitness Bootcamp program on the BU Find Happy podcast for Stupid Cupid Week, right? That's what I call Valentine's Day for those of you who have been listening to this podcast since last year. So thank you and welcome back and listen to these secrets. And I guarantee it's not what you expect. Mort, I'm so happy to have you on the BU Find Happy podcast today. We have a lot of listeners who are struggling in their relationships and have reached out and have requested to have, you know, Mm. kind of a marriage guru on. And you do seem to be the marriage guru. So I'm honored to have you. And I've got lots of questions to dive into to get a little bit more insight and pick your brain. But can you tell the listeners a little bit about who you are and how you got into this? Sure. First of all, thank you so much for having me on. And for me, this really comes from a very personal place. It's not just a profession. A number of years ago, my wife and I had our own marital crisis. You know, conflict resolution and communication techniques and all this kind of sent us backwards into the problems. And we found the more we went into the past and the more we talked about the problems, the more we were mired in in sort of the, the negativity of our whole situation. And instead of things getting better, we just found they got worse. Uh, Instead of, you know, arguing at the kitchen table, we were arguing in their office or wherever else it might be. And it just, it wasn't effective. And it didn't make any sense to us either. We just didn't feel like we were moving forward. And so um, we, uh, we decided at some point just to kind of put the problems and the issues aside and to just, like, just be good to each other. And try to build some goodwill in the relationship. Mm, and, I, I, you know, I, I say that in, in, you know, in a half a sentence now, um, and I'm able to do that. Back then, I can't say that we, like, it, it was a plan or we exactly knew what we were doing. But after we got through the whole experience and successfully reconciled and really even transformed our relationship into something much better than it ever was we felt we had a responsibility to look back and see like, what did we do actually? You know, what, what worked? And, um, and how could we share what we did with others for their benefit? And that was really the origin of mar- the whole marriage fitness methodology that I ended up creating, the book I wrote, the online program that now exists. Um. <laughs> oh, I love that. No, thank you. That's exactly what I was looking for. And, uh, <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> All right, and then back to the back to the <laughs> back to the beef here. So um, you have a program, and it's called Marriage Max, and you you kind of explain it as marriage fitness, which I love because I feel like a lot of people can relate to the idea of fitness. How does the program work? How how does having a fitness oriented mindset help with your marriage? Sure. So first of all, just to clarify, the the website is marriagemax.com. The name of the program is Marriage Fitness. And the main main most popular program is the Marriage Fitness Teleboot Camp. 
Um, and in short, marriage fitness is in, instead of trying to fix what's wrong, we work to make new things right. Mm. And the reason we do that and the reason that works <clears throat> is because when you have marital problems, it appears to us, it appears to anyone, like the problems are the problem. If I were to ask somebody what's wrong with their marriage, they would tell me what was wrong. They would tell me my wife's having an affair, my husband filed for divorce, <clears throat> my, my wife is, uh, my husband's a workaholic, we don't spend any time together, uh, whatever the case may be. Um, you know, there would be, you know, we don't communicate well, we argue all the time. One's attention is drawn to the problems and the issues. And that leads us to believe that it's those problems and issues that need to be fixed or resolved in order for the marriage to heal. It's a little bit of a decoy. It's actually not true. The real problem in every marriage is a lack of connection between a husband and wife. And the problems that we identify as problems are really just symptomatic of that lack of connection. And so that's why <clears throat> marriage fitness is about making new things right, because it's when you make new things right that you form a new connection or renew your connection. And that ultimately is the solution to all of the problems. As one of my own students said, I, this is a great line. I wish I could take credit for it, <clears throat> but it's not mine. One of my students said, oh, I get it more. So the problems don't actually get resolved. They just dissolve. Oh, wow. And that's exactly right. That's exactly what happens. So, you know, when you say lack of connection, are you are you speaking about validation, understanding, respect? Mm -hmm. What what is the connection piece? It's a good question. Um, you know, connection is a word. It's a it's a synonym. I'll I'll I'll, I'll share with you other words that are commonly used to describe the same experience. The most common word is love. Another one is intimacy, <clears throat> closeness, or connected. These are words that are pointing to a certain experience that's very hard to define and describe, and yet we all know what it is. <clears throat> and so it's that experience of being one with another, being bonded with them, feeling close to them, um, that is the experience of love. That is the experience of a healthy, successful marriage. And again, it's the lack of that experience that breeds the issues that we identify as the problems that have to be fixed, which once again, are really not the problems. The real problem is the lack of connection. So one of the things, and, and I've, and I've, um, I've gone, I've gone through your program. I've taken a look at it. It's very, it's very easy to use. I love that about it. It really puts things in a very simplified mm -hmm. way. And there's like worksheets as people are going along and they kind of tap into <clears throat> narratives. It seems that we've told ourselves about <clears throat> our spouse or ourself. Can you explain that a little bit? The self-talk that's involved? Um, so I'm not a hundred percent sure what you're referring to, but if I'm if I'm correct in what I think you're referring to, um, 
We, the, the power of our imagination is enormous. Um, and one of the keys to healing a marriage and redirecting a marriage is using that imagination to envision a new kind of relationship. And so self-talk is, you know, really the first step is envisioning or imagining. The self-talk sort of follows that imagination. But the more that you can uh, imagine and articulate a certain new vision for your marriage, the more likely you are to achieve it. Let's put it like this. Everything is created twice. Once in our mind and then a second time in reality. Mm, nothing, nothing can come can come into the world before it's imagined. Um, that's why, you know, if you're going to build a house, so first you create a blueprint. Um, you know, if otherwise you have expensive change orders. So you have to be very clear about what you're envisioning uh, before you embark, embark upon any journey. Mm, yes, that's exactly. I love that. I love that you laid it out like a blueprint. Like what is our ultimate final, what do we want this to look like when it, when it comes to fruition? I love that. And that's exactly what I was describing in kind of the, the imagining and the, and the, and the self-talk, the narratives we tell ourselves. Right. And to be very deliberate about that is really important. It's, it's really quite amazing. Actually. Um, the average couple spends, it's like 800 and some hours, uh, preparing for their wedding, imagining, let's say, every detail and we all know the excruciating detail that goes into planning for the wedding the colors and the sizes and shapes and i mean whatever it is the food and you know 800 and some hours you know how many average uh, you know the average couple spends um how many hours preparing for the marriage probably like maybe five <laughs> the, the the five hours of dating <laughs> it's less than it's well that's if you that's if you count dating as preparing for a marriage i don't i don't count that the average couple spends less than an hour preparing for their marriage wow wow basically, basically people don't spend any time there's there's not a sense that this is something i have to prepare for there's not a there's not an understanding that this is a skill this is, there's wisdom that has to be acquired here, which is really fascinating because we don't think that way about anything in our life, not just a wedding, but if you want to be a doctor or a lawyer, or you want to start a business, or you want to learn to hit a jump shot, whatever it is, you would, you would, uh, you would Google it, you would hire a coach, you would go to school, you would get a license, you'd watch YouTubes, you would do whatever you could to get yourself up the learning curve because we understand that, that that competency is followed only uh, by knowledge or preceded, I'm sorry, preceded by knowledge and practice for, for you know, I've for, often said that people shouldn't celebrate the wedding before they get married, but rather they should have the wedding at the seven year itch, <laughs> <laughs> invest the money into the marriage instead of into the wedding. Yeah. Or, yeah. Or, or at least invest the time. Right, exactly. So you you talk about forty three ways to make a good marriage. 
What do those look like? What are some of the 43 ways that people who are li- maybe listening today that are, you know, looking to get started? What, what are some of those ways? Right. So first of all, just to pull, to pull a previous thing we discussed into your question and tie it all together, the key again to succeeding in marriage and healing in marriage is to forge a successful connection. And to connect in a relationship is not a mystery. You know, we, we've been taught that love is a mystery. You have to be lucky in love. These are the lies of romantics. Intelligent, successful people understand that there's nothing lucky about love and there's nothing mysterious about it. There really are specific principles and practices that drive a successful relationship. And, and that are, the, that are these, these 43 and even dozens more of specific principles and practices that uh, contribute to that connection to a successful marriage. So you're asking what, what are some of them? Uh, so we just have a couple of minutes here, of course. So I'll just I'll just give you uh, an example. Um, one example would be what I call the three C's: criticize, condemn, and complain. And my advice regarding the three C's is very simple: don't do it. It never works, ever. And yet, most of us, if we really look at our behavior in relationships, Uh, we criticize, condemn, and complain quite frequently. We mean well when we do it. We think it's going to make a difference. We want it to make a difference. And therefore, we do it over and over again and think that this time it will make a difference. But if we're honest with ourselves and look at our relationship history, we will see that it has never, ever, ever been successful. And it won't because it violates one of the important rules about relationships. And so one of the most important things that a person can do in a relationship to improve it is to refrain 100%, not 99%, but 100% from the three C's, from criticizing, condemning, and complaining. That sounds impossible. <laughs> I've, you know, I'm just thinking about times when I'm frustrated with um, – something that's going on and whether it's spousal or any relationship really. And, you know, it's hard not to complain when, you know, somebody forgets to do something that you needed them to do, or somebody doesn't follow through on something that you hoped they would do, or we could even take it bigger and say, somebody violates your trust. You know, it's hard not to, to, to condemn or complain or criticize those three C's. Yeah. So You use two words there almost interchangeably. I just want to distinguish between them. First, you said impossible. Then you said hard. So impossible, I I have to challenge you on. I don't think it's impossible. I know it's not impossible. Hard, I think you're 100% right. It is hard, but so what? Uh, there, There are lots of things that are hard. Uh, and if I want to be successful at anything, I better be able to identify the things that are difficult that I have to overcome in order to be successful at it. And you're right, it is hard. If people want easy, they should go to a different website, not mine. If they want effective, uh, then maybe I'm the, I'm the right address. So you're right, it is hard. Um, so how, how do you do it? How do you like what's one tip to get started? Like for people that are listening today and that are going to go home and are going to be disappointed by something their spouse has done. What's one tip to hold themselves back? 
So I'll mention two things that might be helpful. One might be a little frustrating, but because of the time constraints, it's necessary. And the second that might be helpful and interesting. So the first is that that, that one of the keys to refraining from criticizing, condemning, and complaining is to understand what to do when you feel frustrated as an alternative to the three C's. In other words, if my advice was exclusively don't criticize, condemn, and complain, and just do nothing, that it would be excruciatingly difficult. Still possible, but excruciatingly difficult. One of the keys to succeeding to refrain from the three C's is knowing, okay, so if I'm not supposed to criticize, condemn, or complain, so what am I supposed to do? What, 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 what's an alternative? And that's one of the things that we discuss in the program because of kinds of time constraints, we can't get into it here. But just know that it's, it's not only refraining from something, but it's knowing what to do in its place that makes it easier to refrain from. Hmm. The second thing that I'll mention is that, you know, in most, in, in lots of other areas of our life, we understand that it takes discipline to succeed. And I don't know you well, and I don't know who exactly the listeners are, but I know that you and everybody listening has areas in which which they're competent. It might be some form of athletics. It could be your profession. Um, You know, maybe it's a hobby. You're good at something. And I guarantee you, whatever it is you're good at, you exercise discipline in that area. What's discipline? Discipline is doing what you don't want to do when you know you need to do it. So somebody who's physically fit exercises discipline because they work out regularly. They don't work out when they want to. They work out regularly. That means a lot of the time working out when you don't want to work out. But I do it because I want to achieve a certain objective. And so... Um, for, for reasons we can discuss if you want, we tend to not think of marriage and relationships as something that requires discipline. In fact, you'll hear people say all the time, if I can't tell him what I think freely and openly, then there must be something wrong with our relationship. If I can't speak freely, then this is not right. Really? Are you sure about that? That sounds pretty foolish to me. If I always speak what's on my mind without ever exercising restraint, that's not a good open relationship. That's stupid. (laughs) And that won't work. And I'm going to end up saying things that I didn't mean in ways that I shouldn't have said it. And at times that were less than timely. And so, again, we have this, we have, we've been, We've been sort of brainwashed and educated very poorly by the culture at large that certain things about relationships are true when they are not. Again, I I gave two examples in this interview so far. One is that you have to be lucky in love and that it's a mystery. That's a lie. And two is that a, a quality of a successful relationship is this sort of this sort of freedom and openness to to say whatever's on my mind whenever it's on my mind and that is sort of in it, that, that sort of verbal inhibition is somehow a reflective of a of a healthy relationship and that's wrong it's not 
What's reflective of a healthy relationship is a person that exercises good judgment about when to say what and how to say it. And in all cases, that, uh, that requires uh, wisdom, discipline, and restraint. I often hear people in my psychotherapy practice say to their spouse, sorry, I just can't, I, I just can't change how I feel, and I, and I don't feel right not telling you how I feel. Yeah, right. That's well said. Yeah. Sometimes the expression that's used is um, brutally honest. Yeah, like I, I can't help but be brutally honest. That comes up too, yes. Right. And I, I think that's an ironic term because they're right. It is brutal. Yeah. It, it's brutal and it's foolish. Yeah. It's a good point. King, King David. And we, hold, we have more restraint with perfect strangers sometimes, I think, than we do with our loved ones. Yes, that's exactly right. Somebody once said to me, a man once said to me, he was a little annoyed with some of my advice saying like, gosh, Mort, I'm feeling like I got to walk on eggshells. Mm. And uh, such an interesting... Welcome to the way your spouse feels every day. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. But the other thing I said to him is, you know, if you were on a first date, wouldn't you be walking on eggshells a little bit? If you were invited to the White House, wouldn't you be, quote, walking on eggshells? Like, it's a derogatory phrase, but it's describing something that I don't think we should frame as derogatory. It's describing a, an experience of cautiousness. You know, mm-hmm. when, I, when I cherish a relationship, I'm careful with it. If I if I go to if I go to Marshalls and I buy a vase for fifteen dollars, maybe I'll bring it home, throw it on the couch, give it to my eleven year old. When I get around to it, I'll put it up on the mantle. But if I go to Sotheby's and I buy a vase for a million dollars, there's no way I'm going to put it on the couch. There's no way my eleven years old is getting anywhere near it, and I'm going to hire a professional to secure it to the mantle immediately. Why? Mm. Why do I handle those two things so differently? Why am I walking on eggshells with the million dollar vase? It's because you value it. It's because I value it. That's right. right. That's exactly right. So this gentleman that I was speaking to is framing a a, a character trait that is honorable, or I should say it's it's a a good quality, and he's framing it in a derogatory way, which is putting an untruthful spin on it. Right. Absolutely. So do you think that so many marriages, which is some 60% or something, end in divorce because of a lack of connection? Or is it a lack of follow through? Well, first of all, I think that 99% of marriages that end, end because of a lack of knowledge. Okay. That's, I mean, that is... And, 90, and I'm being generous when I say 99%. I'd really like to say 100%, but I try not to speak in extremes. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I really think that the vast majority of people that fail in their marriage fail because they they fail in their marriage for the same reason that we fail in whatever else we fail at. It's a lack of knowledge. We don't know how to do it. And, and, and in the case of marriage... We don't know how to do it because we don't think there's a way to do it. Again, you have to be lucky. It's a mystery. It's a chemistry, right? It's just not true. You know, just as there are physical laws to the universe, so too there are relationship, emotional and spiritual laws to the universe. 
And we just simply have to learn them and then practice them. And our chances of success just skyrocket. And most people end up divorced because they've never learned them. So you talk a lot about avoiding separation and stopping a divorce and, and that your program can help people with that. Is that is that coming on the heels of gaining knowledge? And what does this knowledge look like? Is it knowledge about how your spouse feels? Is it knowledge about how you feel? Is it knowledge about the ways marriage marriages work? What is, what is it? I, there's two questions buried in there. Sorry. <laughs> Uh, so if I understood the question correctly, I think it's primarily knowledge about how relationships work. And we've given a bunch of examples just in the last few minutes, right? We talked about the three C's. Um, we talked about um, putting aside the problems and the issues and recognizing that uh, healing a marriage, uh, we don't get there by solving problems. We, getting, we get there through forging a connection. Um, so... Uh, you know, the, 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 the path is to understand what are the pr these principles and practices that drive a successful relationship. I'll give you another example, because uh, I, I sense that you're, and, and I appreciate this, you're looking to translate some of this sort of philosophical discussion into something more concrete, which I appreciate. Well, uh, and I'm, to, thinking of, I'm thinking of people who even say my spouse is checked out. My spouse is checked out. So if, if one spouse is that way and the other person is the one seeking knowledge, how does it work? How do you stop a separation or divorce like that, for example? Well, that's a, yeah, that's a really a different question, in my opinion. I mean, your spouse is checked out because the marriage failed, because there's a lack of connection. I mean, they didn't get married and with a plan to check out, right? right, the, two right. Of, the two of you behaved in ways that resulted in certain feelings emerging, which resulted in your spouse checking out. So if you just follow the logic there, where did it all start? It started with behaviors. The behaviors led to the feelings, the feeling led to the decision, I'm done. So you have to be smart enough to realize the flow so that you don't start talking to your spouse about not being done <laughs> because right. that, that's not, that's not going to help, right? You have to go back to the source. The source is the, you know, for example, maybe you've been, you maybe you've been overboard on the three C's for the last 15 years and your spouse just, you know, feels about two inches tall. They feel unappreciated. They feel um, insignificant, they feel like, um, you know, they feel not good when they're around you, right? That's not, that didn't happen by accident. It happened because a person's overboard on the three C's, for example. I'll give you another example. is so simple. Uh, I, I feel even a little silly uh, mentioning it, but what is common sense is often not common practice in relationships. Um, relationships require, for, for relationships to succeed, they require time, a lot of time, one-on-one -on -one time. And again, I feel silly saying it, like, no, duh. 
but take a look at your average marriage. People spend lots of time at work, lots of time with chores, maybe lots of time taking care of things and the kids. Do they spend significant quality one-on-one time with each other on a daily basis? 99% of the cases, no. People are leading parallel lives. And then they and then they wake up, you know, 20 years later and wonder why their spouse is checked out. <laughs> Come that, on. that reminds me of the phrase, couples that play together, stay together. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. There's power in that. Right. So, and, and you just mentioned, by the way, another important quality in a relationship. Um, you, you, you made that statement um, referring to time. And it's true. In order to play together, you have to spend time together. But playfulness, playfulness is an important quality in a marriage. Most of us have it when we're courting. And most of us don't. Once we're into the marriage and yeah, the laughter and the fun and the yeah. adventures and the new yeah. experiences. That's right. That's exactly right. So, you know, why is your husband or wife having an affair? Well, part of it's a breakdown in their moral capacity, but a big part of it is because your marriage is lacking those qualities, the playfulness, the adventure. Mm. And, and there, and, and, and that's not, we, we can't, we yearn for that. So when it's put in front of us <clears throat> in the opportunity of another relationship, people sometimes get seduced. It's not right. They shouldn't. <clears throat> I've heard couples say right in front of, you know, in front of me to the other spouse, uh, the idea of having a date night sounds terrible. What would we even talk about? I, I don't even want to be around this person anyway. Why would I want to go and go bowling, you know, whatever, something like that. So how, how do you encourage playfulness when people are so irritated with each other? Do you recommend them going to a comedy show or something like that? Like, how do you recommend they, they insert playfulness when they're not feeling playful? Well, the first thing I think that a person has to realize in that situation is that if you wait till you, if you wait until you feel like doing it, you'll be stuck forever. Like if, if you, if you approach the relationship with that mindset, how would you ever take a positive step? It's, let me put it another way. It's important to realize that in a lot of instances in life and relationships are certainly one of them. I could give a couple other examples, but um, sometimes the action comes first and the feeling comes second, like a motorboat going through the ocean. The boat goes first, the weight comes behind. Ooh, I love that. So, the so actual just go on a date night, maybe have a beverage, loosen up a little, and then the laughter will come. Yes, and it's not just a date night, but it's a whole series of behaviors and activities that begin to create a different kind of feeling and experience in the relationship. If you want the experience and the, and the feeling in the relationship before you take the actions, you're not understanding how relationships work. It's, it's like getting back to somebody who might be, you know, physically fit and exercise regularly. <clears throat> I gave an example of them exercising even on days when they didn't feel like it. But if you carry, if you follow through with that experience for those of us that have had it, we don't feel like exercising when we start, but how do you feel 10 minutes into the routine? Yeah, so glad you did it. Right. You feel completely differently. In fact, I wish I felt this way 
when I started, it wouldn't have been so easy. To, it wouldn't have been so hard to start. Right. So that's just that. That's just an experience that most of us are familiar with. That is sort of evidence that life works that way sometimes, where the feeling comes after the the action. So what about for people who are going through maybe affairs or different, it doesn't even have to be as, as big as an affair, but what, how do people rebuild trust when trust of any kind has been broken down and, and, and disrespected in that way? Okay. So that's a huge question, uh, how to rebuild trust. And I have a quite a large section in my program about how to do that and the three pillars of trust because of time constraints, we can't possibly get into all of that, but I'll give you two sweet nuggets um, that uh, it's not far from the whole picture, but I think insightful. So the first is uh, the first that's important to appreciate um, is a certain dynamic about trust. And that is that trust is not a choice. You have to really think about this for a second. Trust is not a choice. Trust instead is just a natural, spontaneous experience that you have of somebody that is born of trustworthy behavior. I hope this just doesn't sound like semantics. Please think about it deeply, everyone who's listening. In other words, what I'm saying is that you don't decide to trust somebody. You don't because you can't. You, you trust somebody because they're trustworthy or you don't trust somebody because they're not trustworthy. It's just an experience. You don't, you don't have any control over it. Let me put it to you this way. Whether or not you trust your spouse is not up to you. It's up to your spouse. If they behave in a trustworthy way, then you'll trust them. And well, what they, about, what about the spouse who is behaving trustworthy, but the other spouse is just paranoid and constantly freaking out? Thank you for, it's a perfect transition to my second point. Okay, the second nugget. Perfect transition, yeah. So sometimes people will come to me and they'll say, you know, Mort, your first point sounds good, but I don't buy it because I'm trustworthy and my spouse doesn't trust me. Hmm. And what I almost, not almost, what I always find is that they're actually not behaving in trustworthy ways they just don't realize it. They don't understand what it means to be trustworthy. Let me give you a specific example. People think that to be trustworthy, I just can't make a mistake. I have to just do the right thing. It's not true. You don't have to make a mistake or do the wrong thing to breach the trust in your marriage. You just have to look like you're making a mistake. Oh, wow, that's a lot of pressure. <laughs> suspicious, suspicious behavior destroys the trust in a marriage. And my responsibility is not just to do the right thing, but it's to be beyond suspicion. And so if I'm a good husband, of course, I'm thinking about if, you know, if, if, if I'm presented with something that's not the right thing to do, of course, I can't do it. But just because something is the right thing to do doesn't mean I should do it. I have to ask myself another filtering question, which is, is it possible this could look like it's not the right thing to do? And if the answer to that question is yes, then my responsibility to my wife out of sensitivity to her is to modify my behavior so that 
not only am I doing the right thing, but it's beyond suspicion. Well, I see this a lot in the case of social media, in the couples that I work with. One couple, one person in the marriage relationship is so paranoid because their spouse is on social media and the other person isn't. And I don't think in and of itself being on social media is suspicious, but the other spouse in a lot of ways thinks it is like, you know, what you're, what you're looking at, who you're following, who can DM you, you know, who's following you. And, and that's where I see this a lot with the trust thing come up. That's not as extreme as affairs or something like that. And, you know, the other person isn't even engaging in anything that's, you know, untrustworthy, but the other spouse is just freaked out by it. So I don't want to put you on the spot, and I know you're doing the interviewing, but I'll, I'll ask you, if you don't mind, I want to ask you an interesting question. So in those instances, if if one buys what I just explained, that our responsibility is to be beyond suspicion, mm-hmm. so then what you're bringing up here is a fascinating question, which I'll, I'll ask to you, and I'll ask to you, and we can noodle it around if you want. How do we determine if that's suspicious behavior? So how I kind of approach it when I, when I'm working with couples and I certainly don't have, you know, my, uh, my expertise and level is not to where you are, but I kind of take the, um, transparency policy. If there's really nothing to hide, then spouses should have access to passwords and not, not necessarily need to lock down their phones. I mean, locking down your phone these days with Apple pay and things like that is important, but you know, transparency and passwords, transparency and access, you know, not being secretive with their phone when the other person is around, that kind of stuff. Right. Okay. But let's, let's take it. I agree with you, by the way. Transparency is very important. One of the, one of the pillars of trust, but let's take it outside of social media. Let's, let's just not even define the issue. Let's just say somebody says X, Y, and Z is suspicious. How do we help that couple? determine whether or not, in fact, that is a suspicious behavior. I don't mean to put you on the spot. I'm, I'm sorry. I'll, oh, no, that's great. I'll, no, I love it. Love I'll, it. I'll answer, if you want, I could just answer my own question because it's, it's a little bit of a trick question. The answer, I believe the answer to the question is that suspicion is not an objective matter. It's subjective. And therefore, if you want to know whether or not something is suspicious, don't ask me. Ask your spouse. If they say it's suspicious, then that's your answer. It's suspicious. And if you say to me, my husband, my wife is paranoid, and I don't know anybody else that thinks that's suspicious, I would say to you, you're not married to anybody else. <laughs> oh, that's good. Yeah, that's, you're, that's really you're, good. Your responsibility, my responsibility, is to be sensitive to my wife. It doesn't matter what the other three billion women in the world would think about X, Y, and Z. What matters is what my wife thinks about it. So can people kind of on along those lines, can people go through this program alone? Absolutely. We have a Lone Ranger track. There's two tracks to the program, a duo track for couples doing it together and a Lone Ranger track for couples doing it alone. One of the other myths of, you know, that are out there in culture is that it takes two to tango. That's a lie. (laughs) Uh, One person can have an enormous impact on a relationship as long as they're willing to take unilateral action. And that's the whole purpose of the Lone Ranger track is I teach people 
um, unilaterally things they can do to to to, uh, to impact their relationship. You know, is it dangerous to to? I mean, the way that I see it, just for the record, is that any work that you do towards your marriage is only going to help you as an individual throughout your lifetime. But is it dangerous for people to take the Lone Ranger approach and then constantly get the same behaviors from their spouse if their spouse isn't willing to make any shifts or adjustments? It depends what you mean by dangerous. I mean, I, you know, on, on the surface, I would quickly and easily answer that question as a big no. I don't think it's dangerous. Um, you know, when I when I think of danger, I think of sort of physical danger. But on the other hand, is it possible that they could be hurt? Yeah. Um, but you know, I don't think anybody can. I don't think it, relationships are inherently da- dangerous emotionally. Right. <laughs> right? right. I right. mean, if, if you're not willing to be emotionally vulnerable, then you need to be alone. Mm. I mean, relationships, you know, are, are inherently risky. Um, and so, I, I don't know, da- dangerous doesn't quite resonate with me, but if you want me to, you know, be honest about the fact that, you know, a person could experience some emotional hurt, yeah, but, you know, I, as I say, um, unapologetically to my my clients and the people in the program, <clears throat> my job is to, in a sense, look past how you might feel today or this week and help you get to where you're trying to get to in your relationship six months from now. Yeah, I certainly building a house, in, you know, you endure a lot of challenge and pain along the way to get yeah. to the final product. Exactly. And I I don't mean to sound insensitive when I say that I don't want anybody to experience hurt. And I don't think I ever gave anybody any advice intentionally that unnecessarily caused them hurt or pain. But I'm not scared to give advice that I know will be difficult to employ and might result in them being emotionally vulnerable in the short term if I know that in the long term it gives them the best chance to transform their marriage. And Ooh, I love I, that. And I think a person should be willing to take that path. I love that. I love that. Oh, that's that's a pearl. So so how can people listening assess their marriage? Well, uh, if I could um, offer a uh, a quick promo. <laughs> sure, of course. Yeah. I can't resist. You walked me right into that one. <laughs> I actually offer um, a free on my website um, is a free report, Seven Secrets to Fixing Your Marriage. And that comes with five marriage assessments. Uh, and you can get that free at, um, you know, mortfortel.com, marriagemax.com. Um, and um, so that's, you know, I, I'm certainly not the only one who has assessments and uh, it's not the only way to assess one's relationship. But you, you could, you know, use that tool. It's the first thing that came to mind, uh, mortfortel.com to get the five marriage assessments. Um, how else can one assess their marriage? I mean, I think there's a certain gut experience we all have. Yeah, kind of like the trust, the intuition of trust. Yeah, I mean, I think we all know where we're at in our marriage. Are, are we fulfilled or unfulfilled? Are we excited or bored? Um, you know, 
I feel very blessed. You know, I, I, uh, I'm really not exaggerating. And I say this not to, not to boast. I say this because I believe that you, I don't mean you, but I mean you, you the listener can, can, can experience what I'm about to describe very easily if you just know how to do it. Um, I can't wait to speak to my wife at night. I really look forward to coming home. And we always spend, I don't know, somewhere between 20 and 40 minutes together at the end of every day. Um, and just hanging out, being together, you know, sipping my smoothie that she made me and listen to some music or just talk about the day. And she'll tell me about my daughter's violin print, whatever. We just hang out, you know. No TV, and, though, right? The TV's not on. You guys aren't watching a program. We don't have a television. Okay. <laughs> I think a lot of couples think sitting on the couch watching TV counts as that um, quality, quality it, time. <laughs> We're watching the same Netflix show. <laughs> no, that's ridiculous. No, gosh, no. You can't. <clears throat> you have to turn the phones off, turn, close the laptops. The television one, you know, I mean, we don't have any open sewage pipes in our home, including a television. Um. And, uh, yeah, so, um, you know, I really look forward to that. And, uh, and so can anybody else. You know, you just have to sort of know how to get there. Um, oh, so, sorry, I got distracted there. So that's one of the ways in which you know, that's one of the ways in which you can do sort of that gut assessment of your marriage. You know, do you, do you really look forward to coming home and being with your spouse? You know, do you look forward? I, I look forward to going out with my wife. Um, now, again, uh, just I'll reference you back to the beginning of our interview. It wasn't always that way. Right. You know, it, and took, we, learn, it took knowledge. It took knowledge and, and effort. And it wasn't luck. There really are specific principles and practices that you can employ that forges this closeness and this connection. The more you learn about them, just like anything else in life, the more likely you are to succeed. Well, Mort, thank you so much for being on the show. I'm sure a lot of the listeners are feeling very hopeful, at least a lot more hopeful than they were when they probably turned this podcast on. I will put all the website links um, and to the program that you talked about in the show notes. And thanks so much for sharing some insights on love and relationships. You're welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This has been a BU Find Happy podcast. For more inspiration, check out the links.